getting close to the end of Luke 19. Lord willing, we'll actually finish it next Sunday, Luke 19. But this morning we need to finish up Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So we're going to pick that up this morning in verses 41 through 44. So if you're able to stand with me, let's stand and we'll read these verses together and we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. Now as he drew near, that is, as Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave you, leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Father, we ask, Lord, this morning as we look at these few verses, as we go back and see through the lens of Scripture when your son rode into Jerusalem, there at the Passover feast, there on Palm Sunday, Lord, and all that would culminate his rejection, his crucifixion. And Lord, what seemed like a disaster from a human perspective was wisdom from you. And Lord, how you, before time began, ordained that you would send your son to die for the sins of your people, that he would make atonement for us, and that he would take the wrath that we rightly deserved, and that he would bear it upon himself, and that his blood would be shed for the remission of our sins. And so, Lord, we ask this morning, as we look into your marvelous plan, and we look into human reaction to that, and Christ's reaction to uh, the people, we ask, Lord, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit would say. We ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You all can be seated. Well, you remember two weeks ago we started this section here in verse 28, and Jesus had previously been in Jericho. You remember all the pilgrims are making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. It was one of the three required feasts that all the males in, of Israel had to go to each year, and Passover, of course, being the greatest of all feasts, commemorating the, uh, their exodus from Egypt when, when God delivered the children of Israel from the house of bondage, 400 years of bondage, as Tim talked about last week, as they would you know, kill the lamb that they had kept with them for four days and, and they inspected it to make sure there wasn't any spot or blemish and they would slice his throat and they would capture the blood in a bucket and they would take a little bit of hyssop, a little branch of hyssop and they would dip it into the blood and, and they would apply it to the post and, and to, the, to the doorpost of the, of the house and, and then when the death angel came through Egypt that night that every home that the, that the blood of the lamb was on the death angel would pass over, thus the name Passover. And God delivered his people from their bondage. And of course it was foreshadowing this very event that's going to happen 
on Friday of this week, this week they call the Passion Week, which began on Palm Sunday, the Passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ. And so two weeks ago, we, we began to look at the unusual unveiling of the king. It's not normal. You would figure that a king would, you know, ride in triumph and victory on a big horse, a big stallion, but, but not Jesus. He, he made his way there to the, to the top of the Mount of Olives and from Bethany and Bethage and, and had summoned the disciples to go and get a, a donkey and to bring it to him. And as they brought the donkey there, you know, and they, and they put Jesus upon the donkey, they, 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 they knew, they, they saw that he was fulfilling prophecy that had been predicted 500 years previously by the prophet Zechariah, where Zechariah wrote in Zechariah 9.9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the pilgrims, as they're making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover, they, they recognize this moment as Jesus is joined to this donkey. And seeing Jesus on that donkey was a culmination of everything that they had hoped for, everything that they had longed for in their history. This was a defining moment, the fulfillment of prophecy. Their Messiah, their Savior, their Lord, their Rescuer, their Redeemer, their King had finally come. And instinctively, they honor Him and they, they begin to worship Him. And you remember uh, the disciples, they, they took the coats off their back and they, they put it upon the, the, the back of the donkey and provided a, a saddle you know, for the, for, the, for the Savior to sit upon because He is the King. And the King doesn't ride bareback. And then they, in a, in a moment of tribute and honor to their King, they, they hoist Him up and they place Him on this little donkey. And then others acknowledged his deity you remember after after he had been placed upon the donkey the other people around him some of the other pilgrims took their coats off their very back and they began to pave the road with their coats because their king was worthy to ride upon a red carpet if you will too exalted to ride upon an ordinary road and then the crowd begins to swell and the people begin to lay palm branches down. We learn from the other Gospels, thus the term Palm Sunday. And, and they pave the road with coats and with palm branches. And then they spontaneously break out into praise and worship of their king. And they sing from Psalm 118, Hosanna, which means save us, we pray. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But you remember some of the people refused to celebrate. They refused to join in the celebration. That was the Pharisees, of course, the religious leaders of Israel. They didn't believe that Christ, that Jesus was the Christ, that He was the Messiah. They didn't believe that He was the anointed King who had been prophesied to come. And they didn't believe that He deserved to be worshipped or to receive worship as the King. And they thought that this was blasphemy and they demanded that He make His disciples stop praising Him. And you remember how Jesus responded in verse 40. He answered, he said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And so Jesus didn't command them to stop. He received their worship. One of the clearest 
examples of Christ's deity that you will find in the Bible that he receives worship. Worship reserved only for God. But you will notice as we go through the rest of uh, Luke's gospel here that the people, though Jesus didn't command them to be quiet, you'll find that they did become very quiet. They did stop praising Jesus. The exaltation did cease. Let me, let me read to you over here in Luke chapter 23 real quick here, just a couple of verses. Turn over there, Luke chapter 23, verse 18. And so this is, this is on Good Friday, if you will. So this was Sunday where all the praising takes place, and now here we are less than a week later, and the people aren't worshiping him. They're not praising him. There's no exaltation. It says, and they all cried at once. Pilate has brought their king out to them. He says, I find no fault in this guy. I'd like to release him. And he tries to plead with the people about their foolishness. And they cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, away with Christ, release to us Barabbas. Who was Barabbas? He had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. They said, We don't want Christ. Keep Christ. Crucify Christ. Give us this murder. How fickle people are. And they shouted, Crucify him. Crucify him. And then he said, to them the third time, that is, Pilate said to them, why, why, what evil has he done? I find no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and the chief priest prevailed. So Palm Sunday, they're praising him, they're exalting him, they're worshiping him. And then less than a week later, the only shouts coming out of their mouth are crucify him. The very people who were making the pilgrimage with him to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so what was Jesus' response to this reception? What was his response to this fickle crowd? I mean, John tells us, and I think it's in John chapter 2, that, you know, that Christ knows the hearts of men. He knows what's in the hearts of men. And he knew what was in their heart. All this praise, all this exaltation, all this worship, all this celebration, and yet he knew that it was about to cease and they would call for his death. How did he respond to this fickle crowd? Well, as he hits the crest of the Mount of Olives, and as you come over the top of the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives is just east of the city of Jerusalem. It sits up here like this, and then you come down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley, and then you come up to the Temple Mount area, into Jerusalem, and you see all that. And uh, So as he hits the crest, and the people's worship and, and adoration and exaltation of him has, has, has hit a peak, Jesus sees now the city of Jerusalem. It's in his sights. And what does it say as he drew near? He sees the city and he wept over it. He didn't rejoice. He didn't celebrate. He didn't let out a loud cheer. Yes, we're in Jerusalem. The pilgrimage is over. 
but he saw the city and he wept over it. What, what an incredible contrast. The, the joyful, exuberant reception of Jesus by the crowds with our Lord's tears over Jerusalem. You know, and the people, as they're exalting him, they, they thought that they had received him in a way that was appropriate and fitting as a king. They, they thought that that was right. It was the right thing to do. But Jesus viewed the event as a complete disaster, as a complete tragedy, because he knew what was in the hearts of men. This was just outward. It was just surfacy praise and exaltation. He sees the city and he wept over it. And that word there, wept, it's, it's not the same word that you would find where you see Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. You remember that? That's more of a soft type of a, uh, of a, of a weep. But, but this, this word here where he saw Jerusalem and he wept over it, it's the strongest word that there is in the Greek language for, for, for weeping, for crying. It means, it means a, a, a heaving, a sobbing, you know, an agonizing, where you just, you, you can't catch your breath, and you can't, you, you're just consumed with it. It's an, it's an agonizing, gut-wrenching expression of sorrow. So he sees Jerusalem, and he is racked with agony. He is agonizing over Jerusalem. Why? Why, why did he weep? What, what is he agonized by? As he sees Jerusalem, what's going on there? What, what is, what's causing him to have this great upheaval in his soul? You would think that he would be happy with their response, with their worship, with their adoration of him. But it was all superficial. It looked good outwardly, but he could see through it all. He, he knew what was coming in a few days. Their hatred the rejection of him, his crucifixion. And I don't believe for a moment that he's weeping for himself. I don't believe for a moment that he's weeping because he's going to be crucified. This plan was set in motion before, the, before God made the world. Before creation happened, this plan was set in motion in the counsel of God, in the Trinity, in the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. This plan was set in motion. It was ordained that this was going to happen. This is why he came. He came to die. He's not weeping for himself. But he's weeping. Well, we'll just let him answer the question why he's agonizing. It says in verse 42, he says, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Why, why is he weeping? Well, the first reason he's weeping is because of the rejection of him. If they had known the things that had made for peace, that's why he's weeping. They, they didn't understand peace, the things that make... What kind of peace is he talking about here? Is, is he talking about peace with Rome? You see, that's what they thought, right? They thought that their king was coming and he was going to march into Jerusalem. And he's going to march into the fortress Antonio, which is one of the highest points there in the Temple Mount area. And he's going to go in and he's going to overthrow the Roman garrison. And he's going to take command of it. 
And he's going to be this military leader who's going to, with might and with power and with force, he is going to overthrow Rome so that Israel can be self-ruled once again. That's not the kind of peace he's talking about. He's not talking about peace with Rome. He's not talking about political peace. He's not talking about racial harmony. He's not talking about, you know, in our world, we look for peace and all. We, we think that, you know, we have all these strange ideas, all these wrong ideas about what's, what's peace, what's going to bring us peace. I mean, you know, and most of it really, if not all of it, is just quite, it's just bluntly, it's just selfish. We think that if you, you know, children think this, young people think this oftentimes, mom and dad, if you just let me live the way I want to live, everything will be good. That'll be true peace, right? You all thought, think that. I, I thought that. Mom and dad, just back off. Just let me live the way I want to live. And then I can have real peace. And yet we don't understand God's gracious restraining power in giving us parents so that they don't let us do what we want to do. We think it's going to bring us peace, but what's it really going to bring us? And what did it bring us? Heartache, regret. Oh yeah, sin was fun. But you reap what you sow. There's consequences from that. You know, we have, we have a large population today that, that thinks, you know what? Here's what's going to bring me peace. There, there needs to be this tolerance for, for homosexual marriage. Just let me live the way I want to live. Is that really going to bring peace? Is that really going to bring you peace, inner peace? People think, you know, if I come out of the closet and I announce on, you know, on, on ESPN or whatever, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm gay. You know, that's going to be peace. That's going to bring peace to my heart because now I let the cat out of the bag and I don't have to carry that burden on my shoulders. It's not going to bring you peace. You might have peace in this world, but that's not the kind of peace we're talking about here. We're not talking about even marital peace. You know, we think, we think you know, God, if you would just, just deal with my wife or my husband, just fix them. You can't fix them, then just, you know, let me just move on. That's what I need. I just need to move on. You know, because I'm in this relationship, and we don't really love each other, and you know what? God wants me to be happy. That's what it's about. I need to be happy, and, and I, that's when I'm going to be at peace. So I just need to ditch this baggage of a spouse, and I just need to move on to a new one, and then I'll be at peace. Will you really? Talk to most people who've done that and ask them about the peace that they experience. We're not talking about that kind of peace. We're talking about inner peace. We're not talking about harmony. We're talking about peace with God. That's, that's what he's talking That's what Jesus is weeping over, is that they did not understand the things that made for peace. Peace with God. This, this is the most important type of peace. This isn't national peace between us and, you know, in, 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 in Iran or, or, or North Korea or anything else. Because you know what? Here's what will happen. We get peace with that country, and what happens? Another one pops up, right? It's been happening forever. It's going to continue to happen. That peace doesn't last. And I'm not saying it's not important. It's unimportant. That's not the issue. But so what? 
so what if you have all this peace that you want? And you have this temporal peace here in this world. And you even have peace in your marriage, peace in your home. And that's all wonderful. But so what? What good is all that if you don't have peace with God? Because it's just temporary. It's just fleeting. It's going to come to an end. Because the moment you take your last breath here on earth, that peace is done. Because you're not at peace with God, you're going to be not at peace for eternity. That's the kind of peace he's talking about here. What, what makes for peace with God? Well, I think it's the gospel makes for peace with God. It's, it's faith in Christ. It's repentance. That's what makes peace with, with, with God. It's, it's like, you know, just a, uh, there when we were reading about blind Bartimaeus there on the road in Jericho, and Jesus is walking through there, and, and, and blind Bartimaeus said, Lord, he said, you know, Son of David, have mercy on me. He was saying, hey, I'm not at peace. It's not just that I'm blind, but I'm not at peace with God. What makes for peace with God? Faith in Christ. I mean, he's, he put his faith in Christ. He said, you're the Lord. Have mercy on me. There's nothing I can do, but there's something that you can do. Have mercy on me. Repentance for sin, like Zacchaeus displayed when the Lord said to him, and he's sitting in that little sycamore tree, and he says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down to that tree. I'm, I'm going to have dinner at your house tonight. And Zacchaeus made haste, and he came down right down out of that tree. <coughs> Excuse me. And that he, he was willing to take the money that he has made as a tax collector and from stealing and, and robbing people and for overcharging him and overtaxing. And he was going to restore it. And he did restore it. What makes for peace with God? Surrender and submission to the royal lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what makes for peace with God. Peace with God is not turning 18 and moving out of the home. That doesn't make for peace with God, nor does it even make peace with your parents. Peace with God isn't getting rid of the spouse that you've fallen out of love with. That doesn't, it's not peace with God. It is surrender and it is submission to the royal lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a change of allegiance. That's what makes for peace with God. You see, because when he does, when you have peace with God, when there's a change of allegiance, when, when God takes you out of the kingdom of darkness and takes you and puts you into his kingdom, the kingdom of light, you know what he does? Not only does he regenerate you, you're, you're born from above, you're given life, you, know, you're, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but now he's given you life, an eternal life. But he also gives you a new heart, new affections. And so all of a sudden, all these things that you thought that you needed or you wanted or you desired that were going to bring peace in your life, you find out that's not what it's about. I don't need those things. I've got a new heart. I've got new affection. And now I'm at peace that no matter what situation I'm in. Because you know what? Here's the truth of it. Didn't Jesus say that in this world we're going to have what? Trouble, tribulation, difficulties, right? Be of good cheer. He's overcome the world. So even in the midst of it, and what he's saying is even in the midst of all these troubles and difficulties, difficulties with spouse, difficulty with kids, difficulty with sickness, difficulty with whatever it is, we can have peace. And we can be at peace in the midst of all those things because we're at peace with God because 
He has saved us, and he's given us a new heart, a new affection, a new perspective, a new way to look at things, a new way to walk through difficult situations. You know what's what's the sad part here is these people, these people were right around Jesus. I mean, they're, they're walking with him. I mean, they're close enough to him they can touch him, yet they didn't recognize his true identity. How tragic that is. How tragic that is. They, they believed in this military savior, this political military conqueror. If only they had recognized his true identity, his true mission. It was to reconcile sinners to a holy God. But the truth was that it says here that it was hidden from their eyes. They, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see his, even though they were right next to him, even though that they had laid the coats out on the ground so that he and the donkey could walk on them, even though they were adoring him and showering him with praises and, and adoration, they didn't see. There was, there was like cataracts on their eyes, if you will. It was, it was, it was foggy. It was blurry. And they were, it was hidden from their eyes by their own unbelief in their self-righteousness in their hard-heartedness they rejected the gospel and therefore when you reject the gospel you reject peace with god and so jesus wept he wept deeply he wept loudly he moaned and he groaned from within over their rejection of him Because to reject him for who he truly is and who the Bible says he is, is to reject peace with God. Do you you understand that? But he wasn't just grieving over their rejection of the gospel, their rejection of who he is. He's also grieving and agonizing over the consequences of that rejection. And that's what the rest of this little section is about. He talks about the judgment that's going to come because of the rejection. And this, uh, these last few verses here, they're, they're about a judgment that would come and did come. He's prophesying something that's going to happen 40 years in the future. 40 years from that point. It's going to happen on another Passover in 70 A.D. when the Romans would come into Jerusalem It was a culmination of years of hostility and tension between the Jews and the Romans. But they would come in and they would be God's instrument of judgment upon these people who had rejected the king. And rejecting the king, they had rejected the gospel. And rejecting the gospel, they had rejected peace with God. And there's consequences for rejecting peace with God. And let's look at those aspects of judgment as we finish up this morning. He says in verse 43, notice what he tells, he says, here's what's going to happen. He says, your enemies will build an embankment around you. In ancient times, when you wanted to conquer a city, what you did was you built a, a, an earthen barrier to seal off the city. And that kept everyone in the city, and it kept nobody could go in, nobody could go out. And so basically, you starved those people to death. No supplies could go in. And you also would hope to be able to seal out their water supply. So you're basically going to, they're going to suffer a a long, cruel death. 
starved the people to death. So your enemies will build an embankment around you, and they certainly did. The Romans came in and they built an embankment around that, around that city. They came in with 30,000 troops, and they positioned them at different points around the city, and they built an embankment. Verse 43, at the end there, he says, Your enemies will surround you and close you in on every side. This was done by the Roman general Titus Vespasian. And his army, as I said, 30,000 soldiers surrounded the city. The siege began on Passover day in 70 A.D. All these worshipers had come into Jerusalem. And now they're trapped within that city. Nobody else is coming in. Nobody else is going out. Verse 44 says, And they will level you, not just you, but you and your children within you, to the ground. So this siege lasted for 143 days, almost five months. The Roman army, equipped with battering rams, equipped with artillery engines that could, that could hurl a 75-pound stone a quarter mile, catapults that shot spikes and flaming arrows, they battered down the walls around Jerusalem, and they stormed in. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that there were a little over a million people that were killed in that battle. An additional 97,000 were captured and enslaved. And the last component of that judgment there in verse 44, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. It means that this destruction, this judgment that's going to come upon you, Jerusalem, because of your rejection of the king, your rejection of the gospel, your rejection of peace with God, it will be complete. Let me read to you from Josephus a little quote to give you an idea of uh, just how, um, what a disaster this was. He says, now as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. But should, and, and so he said, he gave orders to demolish the whole city. He said, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave three of the largest towers. The towers are forts, you know, at different points in the city, different corners of the city. I want you to leave three of the, of the largest towers, and I want you to destroy all the walls except for one. Because I want, Caesar said, I want the world, when they come and they look at Jerusalem, and they see these vast towers, and they see how big this wall is, this one wall that's left, that it will be a trophy of how powerful we as Romans are, the Roman army, that we could conquer a city so fortified, so strong. And that's why they left those three towers and that one wall. We know that one wall today is what? The Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, right? Where Jews still go to today and they place little notes in there and they pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's the Wailing Wall. He said it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was nothing, there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe that it, Jerusalem, had ever been inhabited. I mean, it was just the destruction was so complete that you would have thought well, there was never anybody, anything, nobody ever lived here. And this was the end which Jerusalem came to, he says. And truly, the very view itself was a melancholy thing, 
For those places which were adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become desolate country every way, and its trees were all cut down. Nor could any foreigner that had formerly seen Judea and the most beautiful suburbs of the city and now saw it as a desert but lament and mourn sadly at so great a change. For the war had laid all signs of beauty quite waste, nor had anyone who had ever known the place before had come upon it sudden to it now, would, have, would he have even known it again. Truly, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 A.D. was so complete that not one stone was left upon another. They laid waste to that city. And why? Why was this going to happen? At the end of verse 44, we're told, He says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Why did judgment come upon Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? Because they did not know the time of their visitation. Because they didn't recognize that God had visited them for the purpose of salvation. Do you remember there in... um, Oh, Luke chapter 1, and John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, and, and, and he's prophesying about the Messiah and about Jesus and about his birth. And he says, he says, blesses the Lord God of Israel. He has visited us and redeemed his people. He's talking about the birth of Christ. He said he's, he's visited us and he's redeemed our people and has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. That's what it means by visited. He's talking about the Messiah. And because they didn't honor Christ as King, as they didn't honor Him as Lord and Savior, as Redeemer, judgment came. It was horrible. It was bloody. It was complete. It was catastrophic. And that is the consequence of what happens when you reject Christ as King. When you don't have peace with God, Though nothing remains but judgment from God. And what's the application for you and I this morning as we close out? You know what? The Lord is still graciously visiting people today with the gospel, isn't he? Graciously. Through through preaching, through teaching, through radio ministries, through books, through your friends on the street. and God is still graciously visiting people today with the gospel message. You know, and praise be to God that many hear the gospel and they recognize by faith that, that who, tr- who Jesus truly is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Redeemer, that he is the Lamb of God. And they repent of their sin and, and they, they follow him as Lord and Savior, and they are forgiven, and they are redeemed, and they are saved from the wrath of coming. You see, because when they have, you have peace with God, because Christ has saved you, he has regenerated you, he's given you a new heart, he's given you eternal life. We don't have to fear judgment, do we? You see, judgment was poured out upon Christ on the behalf of his people. He took the wrath that you and I deserved so that we could be reconciled, so that we could have peace with God. He did that for you and I. And so we have no fear of wrath to come. We look forward to the day that we take our last breath. 
because we're at peace with God and we'll spend eternity with God. But yet others hear the gospel and they hear about how to have peace with God. They, they hear about how to no longer be an enemy of God but to be a child of God. And they, like the people that Jesus is talking to here, they reject God's gracious offer of peace. And they do not honor Christ as King, as Lord and Savior and as Redeemer, and consequently judgment will come. And the judgment will be catastrophic. And it will be complete. There will be no second chances. And you know, in that 40 years of time between this prophecy and the judgment that came, some were saved, weren't they? God did graciously redeem some. But most went to their destruction because they rejected peace with God. They wanted peace on their own terms and didn't want to submit to Christ as God and King. And so my question I leave you with this morning is, what are you doing about God's gracious visitation in your life with the truth of the gospel? And you know, Jesus isn't just grieved over Jews who rejected him at his first coming and the destruction that would come upon them 40 years later in, 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 by the Romans. But Scripture says that we too can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can grieve Him. He is still grieved by those who reject Him and the eternal destruction that comes upon them. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Scripture says, but that they would repent, right? That they would believe and repent. That's what He desires. And so what are you doing with the gracious visitation in your life with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a great place to lead into communion this morning as we remember what Christ has done for us. And Jason, would you come up and lead us in a song and, and the guys come up and pass it out, please? Because really